the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. Welcome back as we turn to Hour 3 this Tuesday, October 12, 2021. You know what Hour 3 means. It means at least one Holman. That's what it means. And today we have Lewis Holman with us. He is the Managing Director at Insight Analytics, Insight Analytics LLC, among other things. He was off this week. He'll be with us next week. We have no adult supervision, which is good. Absolutely. You get the fun, scrappy, unprepared Holman. And we can end our sentences with prepositions. Absolutely. You betcha. Let me give out the number real quick. Happy to take questions on COVID, but wanted to go in a few other directions as well. 602-508-0960. We'll start with Jeff because he is on the line, and then we'll get into uh, some of the other issues uh, unless uh, you bring up anything you want to bring up. Jeff in Phoenix, you're on with me and Lewis Holman. Hi, how are you guys doing? Great. How are you? Good. Hey, one thing, I just want to ask Lewis a question real quick. Let's do it. Um, I know, Lewis, uh, you've talked a lot about, and I really appreciate your intelligence on, uh, and I can tell you uh, have researched a lot of stuff. Um, uh, Brandon Weikert seems to know a lot about China. I just wondered if you guys have talked about to China and how... Um, you talked about how China was on the their edge of collapse and things like that. They're working people and all those things that you used to talk. I wonder if you guys have ever talked to each other about those things and stuff. I don't think Brandon and Lewis have uh, no, I, have interacted. Have you? I don't, I, think, I don't so. think so. Yeah, I don't think no. So. I, I will say, though, my China prognostication and doom and gloom is, is proceeding right on schedule with the recent uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. issue with Tencent. For those who are not familiar, Tencent, yeah. I think, is the largest stock of privately held debt in the world. Um, some 1.5 trillion, if memory serves. Although that's me quoting from memory, that I, I may need to double check that figure. It is an enormous amount of privately held real estate uh, uh, debt that is just vanishing. The reason for yeah, the reason for this, of course, is that the Chinese do not have access to conventional stock markets to invest their goods in, and many, many Chinese people uh, actually are, own not just second but third homes with real estate being the top sort of investment tranche in China. Yeah, I just thought I listened to Brandon on your guest, and then I thought him and Lewis might really hit it off talking about yeah, it. Yeah, they might. <laughs> we can we can make so, a, a public policy match. Yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, I, Seth, I, want to, I just want to talk about one thing real quick about the airline. Yeah. And I think um, this whole thing, um, this, everything that's going on right now in America – uh, can be stopped by normal working average citizens saying no, and I'm not going to do this because of whatever reasons they want to direct it to. But if it's against their whatever they, if it's against that what they believe in, they should be able to say no and be able to stand up for that. And so I can tell you for a fact what's an unknown story about just like the airlines. What's crazy about this is these CEOs are out here wanting to force this mandate, force this vaccine on people who are not willing to take it forcibly and they're not being even mandated yet by the federal government to do it so they're forcing people to do something they're not mandate they're not being forced to do yet but they are this is the story that no one's telling 
that the news media is not telling you. And there was a little, there's a couple blurbs. They, every single day, they are allowing people onto airplanes with absolutely no ID. They have a government employee who brings them up. They have, they've jumped, just come across the border. They've been, what, there's no processing. They haven't been tested for any kind of illnesses. And they're being let on an airplane with no ID. And they're being flown to other cities where they're being relocated or whatever, or even just disappear. And I wonder if the passengers who are paying full fares and they're sitting next to these people as a flight. My wife was working the other day when there was four people on the flight from Dallas to Newark who threw up the whole flight. Those people have no idea what kind of illness they had. I wonder what the paying customers are saying. Why don't, and they're not telling the paying customers, oh, today's, people we have six people they're coming on uh they're going to be sitting right here uh we don't know exactly who they are or they may be sick and coughing and things like that but we don't know what's going on but go ahead and uh uh we want to know that you have your mask above your nose yeah no uh jeff i was turned on to a, a latin phrase the other day that i had not earlier known do you do you, do you know a little latin quad licit lovae non licit bovi what is good for the gods or or, or Jupiter is not what's good for the cattle or the swine. Two rules, in other words. You have to be of privileged status in this country because we now do have some version of the Soviet line of protexia. If you are of privileged status, and it can, depending on the venue, depend, it, it, it relates to your immigration and citizenship status, sometimes it relates to your race then there will be a different rule than is applied for most Americans. Lewis, I don't know if you want to comment on this. Well, just but, a, I've yeah. got some notes on not that particularly, but on how airline companies work generally that I think might be a little sure. useful. So an interesting thing about airlines is that their cumulative profit margin for all airlines since the Wright brothers is just about $0. It is a an incredibly difficult business to make any money in because there's no – real barrier to entry. You need someone to do the long haul equivalent of drive the vehicle, take it somewhere, bring it back. And and once you have that that equipment and the ability to do it, you'll make money, you'll go bankrupt, you'll sell the air you know, the, the, the planes to someone else and then they'll keep going. And so these businesses require enormous amounts of collusion with government, not only because they have such small profit margins, but also because of things like the uh Federal Aviation Administration, right. things like that, where right. they require lots and lots of communication between the airline companies and, and big government. And, and the so, government needs to move a lot of things and people absolutely. that, right, that uh, they but, don't have enough airlines, to, uh, you know, enough planes themselves to do. And right. so, this, so this is the perfect recipe for an industry that is desperate not to annoy the government, which means it will comply, you know, bending backwards over with every COVID mandate that is laid before it, and that is also very sensitive to customer lashback. So... That means for all of us who at least don't like the way that airlines behave, by changing our behavior, we can very quickly have an outsized impact. Usually, uh, I, I don't think very much of any kind of boycott or the like. But if you are, are willing and able to avoid certain airlines that annoy you, you can have an outsized impact in, in harming them because, because they cannot take the loss. Or what if we went the other direction, the opposite of a boycott? I don't know what the Only op- use those airlines that... that so so, so yesterday we were high on Southwest because right. they were engaging in, or at least some of their uh, pilots and, 
and and along with AT air traffic control uh, unions were exercising some of their civil disobedience rights, which is something we also used to esteem in this. Wonderful, country. yes. So I was saying, you know, stand up with Southwest, use Southwest. Now, to the degree to which they will cave, right? Which it looks like they may do. We'll see. To the degree to which they do that, of course, will change that equation. It's very hard to do boycotts in this country, as it turns out. Right. It's it's very hard to do boycotts generally. Yeah. Just yeah. Because, you know, in in any kind of commercial transaction, you have to you have to give up the product that you 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 need, want, or are right. going for just right. for the this, the moral satisfaction of oh I didn't engage in this. That's right. And particularly if there's not a substitute available. That's so there, right. there are some you know some locations that Southwest is going to be your only bet. Some that American will be your only bet, and you may not be able to substitute those. That's an interesting thing about the that's unique to. A little bit unique to the to the airlines industry. Whenever you take a flight, don't you still often hear at the end the uh, the the, uh, the the flight attendant say something like "Thank you for choosing" or "We know you have a lot of options." Right, Thank you right. For choosing when X, you may, in fact, not. And I don't think any of us actually do make deliberate choices. Some do, but most, I think, just look for the lowest or most convenient fare or route. Well, I don't well, think we're saying things like, oh, I prefer American to United very much. Right. That, I, I Not most agree. of us. Some are, maybe right. at first class levels, but most aren't. Sure. Yeah, or with baggage handling practices and the like, but sure, right. absolutely. So, so, so what the airline industry might consider is giving people a reason to literally want to choose that airline over all the rest because basically if you're if you're a general passenger and in general admission or coach or whatever which i guess is all of southwest in some in 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 that respect give people a reason to show what they want and what they want is not more tyranny you're driving a thought to me here seth so it, it occurs to me that so much of the fortune 500 so much of these large you know international companies so many of them are, are default leftwards in their mm-hmm. cultural yep. leanings yep. and this is sort of strange to me it almost makes me wonder is there not a, like a space where one or more of these companies could break in and yep. seeds huge market segments by just being the default conservative position right Right. Now it also may be that conservatives are not as motivated ideologically by you know to to choose companies but it seems like that like there's a fairly large opportunity there for somebody to say I want to be the conservative newspaper I want to be the conservative airline I want to be the conservative those social that do media. It right have found out they can do it well because there is another half of this country that doesn't follow or tow the progressive line let, let let's come back on some of that and then we'll get into uh some economics and everything else that's on Lewis Hallman's pregnant mind. Phone number 602 We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Those are the um, strummings of Thano and Dimitri Sanas, great guitar players in town been friends with them since high school, which is where I met Lewis Hallman's grandfather, who was my math teacher. Lewis Hallman is our guest, 602-508-0960 is our number. We have a bunch we want to do with you. And um, Lewis, let me springboard off what was said during the break and one of the commentaries about inflation. To get your take on something you were talking to me about prior to uh, today's show, which was this whole notion of taxing inflation costs and targeting the 1%. Take it wherever you want. You had a pretty vibrant concept of all this. All right. So let me, let me 
uh, bear with me here as I, I try to unpack this in a few different directions at once. So we are currently looking down the barrel of about a $3.5 trillion infrastructure plan that we are told is necessary to ensure public health in the midst of this pandemic somehow. This is roughly a fifth of the United States' annual GDP, its gross domestic product. That would mean about as of about five years ago, $3.5 trillion was the sum total of all government spending of all kinds combined. So this is the new addition on top of all of the other government spending and all of the other COVID uh, uh, outlays that we have done on top of regular fiscal spending this year. So we're looking at this and... So we're looking at a $6 trillion budget, right. in other words, when right. we used to have $3 trillion. I think that there, was a, there was a stat yeah. I liked to pull out at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, Seth, that World War II, all expenditures on defense combined, adjusted for inflation, were about $5 trillion. Yeah, right. So we are exceeding the total expenditure of all defense monies for World War II just with this year's proposed spending. Right. So let's let's put it in that perspective to begin with. Now, Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and their cohort of talking heads are breathlessly explaining that all of this will cost us nothing, that it is it, it will cost zero dollars, zero dollars. And the only way that someone in Washington ever can say that something costs zero dollars is if they plan to raise taxes to compensate for that. So this $3.5 trillion of expenditure over the next 10 years that we are going to get, quote-unquote, for free really comes with a $3.5 trillion tax price tag, which surprises no one with an IQ above room temperature. <laughs> so now we have to, you know, so now we look at this and we can easily conclude that we're being misled by our leaders. You know, they're, they're trying to hoodwink us and pull a fast one and get this extra $3.5 trillion. But their, their justification for this is that it's all coming out of the rich, those nasty one percenters that are keeping us down and holding us in place and not letting human flourishing happen and are somehow the reason for all of the ills in America. I think systemic racism is also their fault, but I'll have to double check the latest Democratic uh, uh, policy speeches to verify that. They do <laughs> vacillate so often. Yeah. Right. Anyway, so... They're going to tax the rich to, to, to raise $3.5 trillion. But here's the issue with that. We are the rich, all of us. This is another example of what I, I describe always as algebra thinkers in a calculus world. The current tranche of people in the top 1% are not the same people who will be the top 1% a year from now and are not the same people who will be the, same, the top 1% five years from now or a decade from now. Now, about... 25 to 30 percent of all Americans will at one point in their lives be a member of the top one percent. And about half of all Americans will at one point in their lives be a member of the top 10 percent. Now, this typically happens when you do something unusual and once in your life. Very often you'll be selling a house to downsize into retirement. Anytime where you're moving a large asset like that, that is almost exclusively when most members of the 99 percent I'm sorry, excuse me, of the top 1% enter that class and then are never there again. So what we're talking about are massive one-time taxes on those moments when you sell your house and downside, seizing massive amounts of those fruits and profits that you thought were yours and stealing them away for whatever Joe Biden thinks they should be spent on to, to give to his buddies and pork barreling. 
And so by raising these taxes on the 1%, by raising these taxes on, on the wealthy, all the Democrats are doing is ensuring that you don't see the regular kind of, of churning that happens in the American populations as we move through income brackets. All that that would do is rather than allowing people to enter those top brackets, it will freeze who is there now and, and completely shut the door behind them. This is exactly the kind of move you would expect from someone who claims breathlessly to be progressive and breathlessly to be for the little guy, but who has shown during his entire presidency that the one activity that he's truly interested in is bailing out his corporate crony friends. And that is exactly what this $3.5 trillion of expenditure is going to do. More bailouts for the wrong people. So related to that point, which is crucially important... Because it gives, <clears throat> excuse me, it gives a habitation and a home, as Shakespeare would have put it, to this other point I've been saying for years. I learned it from Jack Kemp. But when we talk about income inequality in this country and we talk about the quintiles and we talk about the disparity between the quote-unquote haves and have-nots, the problem when the left talks about it is they think they're talking about the same person throughout their entire life. Right, exactly. They think that and the they one... they aren't. Exactly. 70% of the Forbes 400 list, which just came out, the 400 wealthiest human beings in this country, 70% were not born wealthy. Right. Now, the other... That can change, by the way. Right. The, you, can, well, you can make that 1%. The other, the, other, the other piece of this, and this is something I try to stress all of the time in my, when I do consulting work, um, is that indices very often have lies baked into them. Right. Anytime you're trying to reduce a complex phenomenon to one number, whether it's the unemployment rate or the income cutoff for the, you know, the top one percent or the rest of it, you are always grossly oversimplifying these things. And so this is exactly how we can, you know, uh, uh, in inflation is a classic example of that. You can look at the differences between household income in 1970 and now. But what that hides is that most households in 1970 were single earner households and most households now are two earner households. There is a huge amount of flatlining in those statistics that is not obvious unless you're able to unpack all of these indices and really take a dive underneath them. And most policymakers, and especially most on the left, are utterly unable to do that because to do so is to disprove all of their univariate points. The classic example, as I keep beating on on this show, is race and age. We, we look at the average savings among whites and blacks as if they sh they're the same group, as if there's no real distinctions between those demographies. But we also forget that the average rate for white Americans is 55. The average age for blacks is about 33. You would expect there to be walloping great differences in the economic outlooks of those demographics. And yet the left is surprised. Yeah. I want to pick up on that and um, when we come back because there's a relationship to it beyond just the class issue. And it gets to the race issue, which you're touching on. And I think you'll like what I have to say when we come back. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Lewis Hallman is my guest. Our phone number is 602-508-0960. We were just talking about lumping in people groups when it comes to adjusting in the name of financial, economic, and other forms of the new 
neologism of the day, equity. I think that's what we're talking about when we're talking about income inequality is we're talking about creating some kind of equity and there's a lot I can say about it. But let me start with the problem in lumping groups together, which the progressives love to do so much. Perhaps that's a reason why we conservatives care so much about individual rights. Groups don't mean much to us for this reason, precisely this reason. When we talk about underprivileged groups uh, and we talk about them by dint of race or national origin, primarily African-Americans uh, who may or may not have been born here or whose family may or may not have been born here, uh, we kind of lump them all in, right? This is how people like Joe Biden can get away with saying if you don't vote for me, you ain't black, right? Absolutely. You can even fractionate those ethnic groups down, the yes. racial groups down, and get well, wildly huge differences Well, that's where I was them. going. So the error in that is, according to the, the work of Rob Aurora, According to medium household income statistics, several minority groups substantially out-earn whites. These groups include Pakistani Americans, Lebanese Americans, South African Americans, Filipino Americans, Sri Lankan Americans, and Iranian Americans. Now, let's get to the black immigrant groups. Nigerians, Barbadians, Ghanaians, Trinidadians, and Tobaganians have a median household income all above the American average. The Ghanaian Americans, to take one example, earn more than several specific white groups such as Dutch Americans, French Americans, Polish Americans, British Americans, and Russian Americans. Do Ghanaians have some kind of sub-Saharan African privilege, Rob asks? Last, last one. Nigerian Americans are one of the most educated groups in America. They make up less than 1% of the box black population in America, but 25% of the black student body at Harvard Business School. This is the problem with treating people by group and making public policy on top of it. Right. Well, you know, human beings tend to resist the Home Depot paint chip method of classification. They really do. There is a lot more, I, I would argue, that is uh, are cultural drivers that, that will explain a lot of these differences. So when we're talking about fractionating down um, African-Americans, for instance, you'll see um, Caribbean blacks, those that are, that are, are first-generation immigrants, uh, second-generation immigrants, will have, again, as you, as you noted, um, economic uh, uh, profiles that are much more in common, if not exceeding the American average. Right. They actually share a lot of this with um, East Asian immigrants, right. for instance. And so I would posit that then there is something about this immigrant culture where you have a, a, an over-the-ocean journey, right? The difference between that and, say, the, the Central American corridor is that Anybody can walk up Central America. It's very difficult and it, it's very dangerous. But physically, caravan, if you want. almost yeah, anyone can yeah. do it. The barriers to entry are very different versus if we're talking about from sub-Saharan Africa or mainland China or wherever else, you've got to get across an ocean. And so that requires either plane tickets or um, being smuggled through a ship, which is much more expensive than being smuggled over the, over the border. So as a result, you tend to get different subsets of each population being the immigrant class that's moving. Typically, you see, on, you see a brain drain from most uh, 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 East Asian countries to the United States. You see a similar brain drain from most sub, uh, South Saharan uh, uh, countries to the United States. You just don't see that as much, or you see it to a different degree with uh, uh, South and Central American countries. 
But you so know, especially if the people are being smuggled illegally against right. their will, right? <laughs> they're not they're not smuggling the best and the brightest. But right? then, but once you once you lay it out there and you start to think that yes, indeed, there may be these kinds of cultural uh, uh, attitudes and cultural variables that have a huge impact. Once you start to get play the culture game, then the race game loses. Right. It has to. Right. right? You can't talk about uh, 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 all of these minor cultural differences that you can effectively opt into if you're dealing socially. with a rational if you're That's true. dealing you, with a rational you do have to frame be, right because we have for a long time been trying to point this out there are a couple things that matter culture probably more than anything else what's culture it's family it's education it starts there right and all of these groups have very strong families and edu- and right. uh, and and uh, it's a family formation very high all of it yes and commitments to education you see this in every one of those groups so what do we do with that we don't talk about it we don't talk about it or better yet if we do talk about it we try and censor it now i have set the table for the big topic you want to address when we come back which is on totalitarianism let's do it i'm Seth Leibson he's Lou Holman we'll be right back Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Lewis Hallman is my guest. Um, Lewis, you were the one I said on air. Someone was talking to me about the phraseology we should be using to describe the efforts of the progressives. And, you know, we use a lot of different terms. We have used a lot of different terms here. Authoritarianism, fascism, dictatorial, um, autocratic. And... It was in a stroll you and I were having once where you said the phrase really ought to be totalitarianism. And I was mentioning that on air the other day, although I didn't have your permission to use your name. person who gave me the idea. It is you, and you gave me permission, and it's great. And it's a really good insight that I wanted you to run with and talk about with me for a little bit. Right. So let me me see if I can unpack it. Um, The idea that that I was having was that it was particularly in the context of all of the the COVID overreaches that that we've been talking about – in the 20th century, we had this idea not of of sort of fascism or communism necessarily That's being right. the, the enemy of democracy, right. but that totalitarianism right. Right. is the enemy of democracy. And let me let me see if I can tease apart the distinction here uh, because it is a subtle one. Totalitarianism is sort of an umbrella term for any uh, uh, system of government or ideology that is totalizing, that that says effectively that there is no demarcation in your life where this ideology or or these guidelines are not relevant. You want the personal being political? Baby, you got exactly. it. Exactly. So it's the, dip, yeah. it's, the, it's the ability to have a distinction between a personal and a private life. I'm oh, sorry, a, a public the, and the a private life. The erasure of that distinction. It's, right, right. 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 Uh, um, it, that, that really, to me, is the crux uh, at the heart of most totalitarian efforts. And, uh, you know, I, I think that we can make a pretty easy case for the, the, react, the reaction to the pandemic being increasingly totalitarian, you know, with arguments over masking and school choice and whether or not we should have vaccine passports to whether or not, you know, health clubs can be open or movie theaters can be open. Churches. Churches, whether or not you can go to your own mother's funeral if she had died in the early because stages, in the hospital, right. right? All of these things, and so increasingly, you know, the government 
said, all right, there's an unknown situation that is scaring people back in March of 2020. And the reaction to this was, all right, ergo, we need to command unilateral power to interfere with every facet of the American people's business and lives. And they believed that they had a mandate to just run and do that because this is a new novel emergency that we'd never seen before. I'm still not sure where they derived this power, but they believe that they have it. And so it's not, it's not a communism thing specifically. Very few of these, these people are acting on behalf of communism, nor are they acting on behalf of fascism. Right. And, and calling them these things, saying that Joe Biden is a communist or that Joe Biden is a fascist, really just gives serious people who know the definitions of communist and fascist ammunition to say, well, you don't really know what you're talking about. So that's why I like to stick with the phrase totalitarian, because it is, from this perspective, relatively unchallengeable. You cannot deny that Joe Biden has intruded into almost every facet of our lives. That's right. I remember in his book, Up From Liberalism, William Buckley said, a liberal is someone who reaches into your shower to adjust the temperature for how they want you to have it. And he called them a liberal in those days. Oh, I, I, I right? would not, that would not have been the right use of liberal, at least in the context of today. But <clears throat> we are awfully real close. I can say that because your dad's not here. We are, we are very close to his example. Mm-hmm. We're very close to his example. And if a government can mandate that you have to choose between your livelihood and – your um, between your livelihood and your country uh, and, 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 and a mandate that you may not want your livelihood and your health, let's say, if they're forcing you to make the decision the way they want you to make it, it's what's known as a Hobson's choice. It's not much of a choice at all that right. you're giving people. So you have now very much entered the realm of taking away any individual right, any individual autonomy. And if you can do it for something with a 98.6% survival rate, if you can do it with that or higher, if you can do it with that, if you can do it, let's take airlines where there is no real study that shows airlines are of any concern. In fact, if you go to the CDC website on air travel I was mentioning earlier, they talk about terminals. They don't talk about the problems on the airplanes. Because we don't have studies on real problems from the airplanes because we don't have real problems on the airplanes. If they can do it all for that, what couldn't they do it on and what couldn't they do? We are told conterminously to this that there is a crisis facing us in eight to nine years. It depends on who you ask, that the world will end as we know it, because of what we are doing to the environment. This is also the same timeline that they gave us eight or nine years ago or eight or nine years before that. Correct. Correct. I was talking earlier about the national park that just took down the signs that said these glaciers will be extinct by 2020 as people are hiking the glaciers. All of that. But isn't that at the end of the day, that, that overreach, that totalitarian instinct in this country with a culture that used to abjure it, isn't that what might ultimately explain what you might call hesitation? It's the distrust of the government. It's mm. the distrust, that natural kicked-in instinct that comes sometimes late but often comes. It says, 
why why am I believing you again? Particularly as over and over the advice and the mandates are contradictory and as I have been making the case earlier in the show, serving only to enrich your oligarch friends. Exactly. Hannah Arendt, who uh, brought the study of totalitarianism, I think, first in a big way to the modern world with her book on totalitarianism in the um, in the nineteen uh, in the nineteen fifties, she said that the totalitarian state can only exist when the government is able to persuade the mass of the population to believe lies. The mass of the population to believe lies. Now, I don't think we're there yet. Well, I would say with social media, Google and Facebook, that's easier now than it's ever been. I was been. just going to say we're getting our closer by the day. Exactly right. Exactly right. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Lewis Holman. We'll be right back. All right, Lewis Holman, drive us home. Well, Seth, there, there was one piece, really, from our last segment. When you, you said that the personal is the political, yep. I thought that that was the perfect note to close on. If the personal is, in fact, the political, what does it say about the personalities of those whose politics includes, oh, burning down small businesses because policemen in another state shot someone or or, or, or or killed someone. What does it say about their, their personalities that they uh, uh, are endless busybodies who want to keep you locked in your home and that want to stop your children from learning at school? What does it say about their personalities that they blame every failing of their own on some amorphous other or some systemic issue rather than taking personal responsibility? What does it say about their personalities that these people are higher in rates of mental illness, lower in rates of family formation, and generally more miserable people. If the personal is the political, then why are we taking political advice from miserable, unhappy, unfulfilled people? Seth, it's mystifying to me. It's a great point, and that personal is political is something we should examine maybe in more depth next time you're here. I would love to do it because it's an interesting thing. The phrase originated... When uh, I believe it was the feminist movement that originated it, they wanted to talk about their personal lives right. as having. But we now have a totalitarian system, right. which is in reverse with the government saying we're going to reach in and make the personal or what used to be personal part of the public sphere. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's the different direction. Right. Instead of, instead of saying I have personal problems that deserve to be politically recognized, right. it's, hey, all of your personal lives are now ours to scrutinize and ours to mandate. Yes. So the reading assignment is 1984. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Lewis Hallman. Until next time, which is tomorrow, God bless you all and class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.